Well, this is God's word. <laughs> Are you familiar with the grim tale of Ananias and Sapphira? Uh, their story is found in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And that's where I'd like us to turn our attention to this morning. Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 12 You'll find that on page 913 of our church Bibles. How fascinating and how frightening. And frankly, verses like these give pastors like me heartburn. I mean, if this were a parable that the Apostle Peter told, he would conclude his parable with, you know, so therefore beware of pretending to be who you aren't, especially when it involves money because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many who have pursued money have pierced themselves with many a grief. You know, preach the parable, tell the lesson, pray the benediction, and let's go grill out. Right? But that's not this. I mean, the, the book of Acts is not presented as a series of parables. Luke is a physician. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke and now Acts, this two-part series, he did this to strengthen the faith of a believer named Theophilus. I want you to know the certainty of the things that you've been taught, Theophilus. And Luke says he's carefully investigated and researched the life of Jesus and the early believers. He's interviewed eyewitnesses. This is not a parable. It's based on an eyewitness account. Which is why this gives pastors like me heartburn. Because the question, the question is, well, really? I mean, doesn't this seem... Excessive? I mean, I thought Acts chapter 4, 33 says, and great grace was upon them all. I mean, if, if so, what are we to do with these verses? What, what do we do with these verses? What's the next step here? Oh, take the microphone, and let's go to the floor, and let's ask, we'll start with Carl Weigel here. How much did you give last week? And, and, is that your final answer? And we'll all wait, you know? Poor Carl. <laughs> but seriously, some look at these verses and they go, this is why I stopped going to church. Or this is why, you know, I've stopped believing in God. And if that's where anybody is today, please, I totally understand your concern. And, and I, I want to try to address that in a way that respects that concern. Um, so to do that, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the context in which these verses are set. And then I want to look at the text itself, these verses. And then I want us to leave here with some truths from the text. Okay? Context, um, text, and 
take-home truths from the text. That's, where, that's the path I'd like for us to take today. Barbara Taylor Brown is a preacher, and she's helped me understand these verses by calling them what they are. This is a text of terror. This is what she says. These texts pry our fingers away from our own ideas about who God should be and how God should act. And there's really only two things left for us in verses like these. We either use these verses to propel us toward God or the, the God who is not the God of our expectation or our preference or our imagination, but the God who is. We use these verses to propel us toward the real God or we let these verses sink us like a stone. And so what I want is to move closer to the God who is. So let's look at the context the text, and then truths from the text, starting with the context. Now, what do I mean by context? To understand Scripture, it's always helpful to think about context. And by context, I mean this. The context is the setting which surrounds a specific event. The setting or the set of circumstances that surrounds a specific event. Someone once said that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, if you take something out of context, you're liable to spin it and misrepresent the author's intent. So what's the context here? What's the setting? Well, the setting is this. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, the resurrected king, spent 40 days with his disciples teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then in a magnificent and splendid event called the Ascension, Christ, who told his disciples that in just a few days you would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This Jesus stepped from the dimension of earth to the dimension of heaven. Heaven is not in some galaxy far, far away. Heaven is unseen to the human eye. Heaven is simply the control room of all that is seen and unseen. Jesus is not far from us. And just because you can't see him doesn't mean he's not in charge. In Acts chapter 2, Jesus poured out his Holy Spirit on the believers. And these believers spoke gospel truth in languages of the world because Christianity is a global faith. God wants all cultures in his kingdom. And 3,000 came to Christ. In Acts chapters 3 and 4, Peter and John, the apostles, go to prayer outside the temple. They find a man who had been disabled in his legs since birth they heal him. They proclaim the gospel to astonished onlookers. And 5,000 come to faith. The religious enemies then arrest them. And Peter boldly preaches the gospel to them. There is no name given under heaven 
by which we must be saved. And you judge for yourselves whether it's right for us to obey God or man. We cannot help speaking about what we've seen and heard. And they released Peter and John, and the apostles returned to the believers, and they had a prayer meeting. And this is what they prayed. They did not pray that God would protect them. Rather, they prayed for more boldness. God, give us more boldness to proclaim your word. God, we'll do the talking, you do the healing. Through your servant, your righteous and holy one, the author of life, Abraham's offspring, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And I'm telling you at the amen, the place where they prayed was shaken and the believers were of one heart and mind. And there was this spirit-filled, spontaneous sharing. No one called anything his own. The apostles continued to teach about the resurrection, and, and Acts 4.33 says, Great grace was upon them all, and their generosity was radical. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, sold some land, gave all the money from the sale, at the, put it at the feet of the apostles, and, and they were so encouraged by this, they gave him a new name. We're not going to call you Joseph anymore. We're going to call you Barnabas son of encouragement. And Acts 4 closes with this picture of heaven because Acts was written to give us a picture of what heaven looks like when heaven swallows earth and becomes the new heavens and the new earth. So Acts closes, Acts 4 closes with this picture of heaven, a truth-based, spirit-saturated, grace-empowered, spiritual temple inhabited by Jesus himself. And in that context, Satan appears. Satan appears. Chapter 5, verse 3. Why has Satan filled your heart? Satan, who has received a lethal blow by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but who even now is in the throes of a final death rattle. And Revelation chapter 12, 12 says, Satan is filled with fury because he knows his time is short. He just wants to take as many people to hell with him as he can. So this is not about a cranky apostle who overreacts against a cantankerous church member. This is about an enemy intruder who in the throes of a death rattle trespasses into a holy space, the holy temple, in order to take out as many victims as he can. That's the context. And his agent, his agent happens to be, chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira. Ananias. The name meant God is gracious. Sapphira, the name meant beautiful. But they did not live up to their names. They saw the attention given to Barnabas, and they wanted that. They, they wanted the appearance of holiness more than they wanted holiness. 
They wanted to seem righteous more than they wanted righteousness. They wanted to look generous without actually being generous. So they sold some land. It was wonderful. They brought the proceeds to the church. Wonderful. They put the money at the apostles' feet, uh, indicating some sort of public worshipful ceremonial presentation before the church family. Wonderful, worshipful. The problem? He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it, all while claiming that their gift represented the entire sale. In other words, Ananias, with Sapphira's full knowledge, intentionally and publicly misrepresented what they gave. And not long after the doxology, Peter, an agent of the Holy Spirit, confronts Ananias, the agent of the evil one. How could you do this? Ananias, the Holy Spirit has been filling our hearts with truth. How could you let Satan fill your hearts with deceit? The Holy Spirit has supernaturally enabled us to speak foreign languages, to proclaim the gospel. How could you let Satan tempt you into speaking his native tongue, which is lies? Verse 4, wasn't this property to do with what you wanted? No one said you had to sell. And when you did, was not the cash yours to do with what you wanted? Why have you contrived this deed in your heart? And that's where it all started, you know. Starts in the heart. Greed, envy, and putting on appearances. That may involve money. But it's always deeper than money. Verse 4 says, it's, it's not what's in your purse, it's what's in your heart. What did Ananias think was missing in his heart that led him to this lie. I mean, the Holy Spirit had flooded the church, and yet in his heart, Ananias said, well, I'm not getting this blank from God, therefore I will lie, I will pretend, I will defraud, I will profess to be someone I'm not. Well, what's in the blank that led him to do this thing that led to his death? John 12, 43 is a clue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. There it is. Years and years ago, in a commencement address, Yale University President Timothy Dwight gave a message titled, On the Love of Distinction. Um, across the country, many graduation ceremonies are going to be appealing to graduates. You know, reach for the stars, be unique, be distinct. But there's a dark side to this, Timothy Dwight said. The dark side is that ambition can become corrupted into unholy ambition. And an unholy ambition leads to a love of distinction, and a love of distinction can lead to a lust for fame, which can make you fiercely compete at all costs 
for personal praise. It can make you value what is trivial over what is eternal. The love of distinction can cause a person to trade character for glory. One author put it this way, the love of distinction never has a project, person, or purpose in mind beyond self. The most important thing isn't the success of the business. The most important thing is that I be remembered for being the best. And that's what's going on here. And that was Satan's lie. That's Satan's temptation. And when you think about it, Satan's temptation to Ananias and Sapphira was very similar to his tempting of another couple in the Garden of Eden when he said to Adam and Eve, you will be like God. And like Adam and Eve, Ananias and Sapphira took the bait. And Peter said, you've not lied to men. You've lied to God. And I mean no sooner than those words left Peter's mouth in front of the congregation, Ananias drops dead. Oh, the irony. In listening to Satan's lie, both Ananias and his money now lay at the apostles' feet. And some young men, you wrap him up, scoop him up, and bury him. And Sapphira didn't know any of this. And three hours later, she came in. She didn't know what had happened to her husband. And Peter gets right to the point. He said to her, this financial gift, you know, did this represent the full price of the land? And everybody's waiting, right? What's she going to say? And church, do these verses help us understand that you know, there are times when God calls us to moments of truth, moments where God wants us to take a stand, to drive a stake in the ground, to own up to the truth about who he is and who we are, to come out of the darkness of denial and step into the light of truth. And sometimes that moment comes once. You get one shot. Was this the full price of the land? Was this, can you feel the digit? Uh, do something for me here. When I count to three, I want everybody to just gasp, okay? Uh, ready? One, two, three. Uh, again, one, two, three. Uh, all right. Was this the full price? Oh, yes, yes, of course. One, two, three. Uh. Peter goes, how could you do this? How could you and your husband conspire to test the Holy Spirit? The young men here who have just returned from burying your husband are going to take your dead body out too. And Timber, she dropped dead right there at the apostles' feet. She who had joined her husband in this conspiracy, now joins him in the grave. And verse 11 says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Well, I guess so. 
there was a fearful attraction that Jerusalem had about the believers. It's, it's fascinating. No one wanted to join them, and yet the church grew. Verses 13 and 14. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. And that's the text. And you get the point, don't you? Please be very careful not to use the holy church of Jesus Christ as a platform for your personal glory. Please. Please beware of using the, the holy church, the temple of Jesus Christ as a platform for your personal glory. Christ did not build his church to expand your resume. Christ did not build his church to enhance your reputation. And Christ did not build his church to enrich your client base. Please be careful not to use Christ's holy temple, his holy church is a platform for personal glory because God does not share his glory. It's his glory. It's his glory. And it's his church that he's building. So why did he build his church? Well, that takes us to the truths that I want us to go home with from this text. And the answer to that question, why did Jesus build his church, um, is in three words. Space, face, and grace. Space, face, and grace. Let's talk about space here. That's in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church. You see that word church? That's the first time the word church appears in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts comes to us by way of the Greek language. And in the Greek language, the word for church is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Uh, on three, repeat that after me. One, two, three. Ekklesia. Again, one, two, three. Ekklesia. Ekklesia. It means assembly. It means called out assembly. Called out ones. Called out from one way of life to another way of life. Called out from the past. Called out to a present and a future called out from the hopelessness to a hope grounded in the resurrection, called out from evil to truth, called out from unholiness to holiness. We are called to be the temple residence of the resurrected king. We are called out to live in distinction for the one who is truly distinct. You see, Luke is teaching Theophilus that the church is God's temple from every tribe and nation and language over earth. Herod's temple's going down, but Christ's temple, bought and paid for by his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension, Jesus said, I will build my church, and we are that church. Which means that this church, his church, is his space, 
It's his space. And in Scripture, to disrespect God's space is lethal. So when God was at Sinai, he told Israel, don't come up on the mountain. Stay down at the mountain. Stay down at the bottom. Don't come up. Only Moses come up. Moses can be your mediator. But don't you come up. He set boundaries. Why? Because it's his space. God's not tame. He's holy. And later on in 2 Samuel chapter 6, a good man, I mean a good man, named Uzzah was a Hebrew, and he was accompanying the Ark of the Covenant, one of the, the, the premier piece of temple furniture in the Holy of Holies. He was accompanying the Ark of the Covenant. He saw it was on a wagon. It was about ready to tip over, and, and he was trying to help. He reached out, and he steadied it with his hand, and bam, he died right then. Why? Because the Ark's God's space. That's why. God has his space, and it must be respected. This church is God's space. And to be careless or flippant before a holy God is lethal. Annie Dillard, who was the teacher of Helen Keller, in her book, in Annie's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk, wrote these words about God's space. She said, why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a packaged tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. This church is God's space. And just as a father is fiercely protective over his two-year-old daughter, so our Heavenly Father is fiercely protective over his vulnerable church. This is not just about a man and a woman. This is about a contest between the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ and his sworn enemy, Satan. And the issue is, who has sovereignty over this space? And Jesus says, it's mine. It's mine. And our offense at God's actions may very well reveal our blindness to the offensiveness to sin, and it may disclose our puny vision of God's holiness. Space. Face. Ananias had one face. Barnabas had another. One face was concerned about reputation, the other about character. 
You know the difference, don't you? Reputation is how others see you, your character is how you really are. And, and here's the deal. As long as your character exceeds your reputation, the temptation to do what Ananias and Sapphira did really won't be as much of an issue. But when your reputation exceeds your character, that's when you become vulnerable to deception. And when it comes to God's family, it's very difficult on a human level to tell the difference between Barnabas and Ananias. I mean, on the outside, Ananias and Sapphira look just like another church member named Barnabas. And frankly, in our church, I don't know for sure who's Barnabas and who's Ananias. And you don't know for sure about me. It's possible to hide the truth. It's possible to hide your heart from others. But your heart cannot hide from the Holy Spirit. And if you really want to know the truth about me, I think both Ananias and Barnabas live inside me. And there's an Ananias in me that sees, you know, other ministers and other pastors and their churches and their book deals and their conference keynotes and their snazzy last names. Bolting House? Really? <laughs> I don't see these other pastors as brothers and sisters in Christ. They're competitors. They're competitors. Keeping me from my quest for distinction and every time you clap for them, it's one less clap for me. You keep that in mind the next time we have a guest speaker. <laughs> Is that sad? Everybody should gasp. One, two, three. <gasps> That's the Ananias in me. And, and yet, you know, there's a Barnabas in me that sees needs and my heart melts and I pray and I ask God for a solution and then, you know, I thank God when it becomes clear to me that, you know, he wants me to be the solution to the prayer I just prayed and, you know, and as a result, people's needs are met and love is shared and the church becomes a community and, you know, sometimes I'm Barnabas and sometimes I'm Ananias. You call it what you want. Some have called it spiritual schizophrenia. <laughs> and so for me, the question isn't, why did they die? The question is, why am I still alive? Yeah. And the answer to that question is my last word. Right? Space, face, and grace. That's why I'm here. And you know, everything Ananias and Sapphira wanted, Christ had already promised them. You know, they wanted recognition. Who doesn't? Jesus promised, if you will acknowledge me before this world and this life, I will acknowledge you before my heavenly Father and the universe in the life to come. Ananias and Sapphira wanted riches. Who doesn't? Christ has accomplished for us an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira was that they were far too easily pleased. 
I mean, what if Ananias and Sapphira had said, Peter, we'd love to give the entire amount, but we just can't right now in our life situation. We can't. We wish we could. But Peter, do you think the Lord would be pleased if we sold the land and gave half of it to the church? Would that be okay? You know, everybody in here knows the answer to that question. And great grace was upon them all. Of course, Ananias and Sapphira, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then they would have given and the church would have celebrated God's grace and goodness. And they would have lived. And they would have been known for their honesty, not their secrecy. You are only as sick as your secrets. And if you will own your secrets, God's grace will free you from them. But if you hide, you will be a slave. First John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And why? <laughs> because of grace, his great grace. The beauty of God's great grace is that it not only rescues me, but it puts me in my place. God's great grace humbles me and helps me see that it's not about me. God's great grace causes me to love the king rather than wanting to be the king. God's great grace leads me to weep over Ananias and Sapphira instead of judging them. God's great grace leads me to the uncomfortable truth that I'm more like this couple than not. And God's great grace reminds me that he does not owe me or anybody else heaven. And God's great grace makes me want the applause of heaven more than the applause of earth. God's great grace makes me want God's glory than man's glory. God's great grace is sufficient. It's eternal. It's true. It's life-giving. It's Jesus. It's Jesus.